out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Welcome once again. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show, always bringing the finest in indie pop and beyond. As you know, we like a special guest this week. It is the turn of Mary Biker, a.k.a. Mary Mary from the Gay Bikers on Acid. Um, Yes, it is actually the lead singer, Ian Hoxley. So this is the interview which we did a few weeks ago, to find out more about life, love, poetry, and also a career in music. This is it, and this is where, this is the first bit where I am, and this is the only bit, by the way, Um, but this is the introduction, where I'd been just talking, as you do, about life and all that stuff, and then mentioned that I'd been talking to Tim from The Janitors, yes, The Janitors, that fabulous band, about a film that uh, they appeared in, and it was made by the gay bikers on acid. And this was Ian's response. Ian, tell us more. Yeah, we made a we made a slightly slightly strange, <laughs> uh, yeah, film when we signed to when we signed to Virgin. Yeah, we we uh, and obviously those guys. I don't know if you know the story, but they they were the, they were the ones that really got us up and running because they were our friends and they their chicken stew, i think chicken stew was out on in tape right um they gave the they gave the tape gave the tape of out of a demo to mark riley and basically we that's how it all started they, they helped us out immeasurably in, into getting getting up and running so without the janitors with that nothing wouldn't have wouldn't have had the career that i've had to be honest oh so, right so they they were the catalyst. i mean yeah that was well, an, yeah for sure yeah so he mentioned the film which i had to sort of you know sit through bits of it you know i make it sound like pain but it was it was kind of i think it was of its time wasn't it it was totally of its time and it's a little bit on pc if you if you all, all said and done if you go back and watch it i think we i think we just you know we were just off our heads and just sort of you know it was like megalomaniac behavior oh well, i'm gonna let's make a film da, 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 da. so um yeah i mean yeah it's definitely of its time yes yes well i just saw the bit with the janitors i think i saw the bit with the janitors it was all it was as you say you know it was um there was a a lot of drugs there was a lot of drugs really weren't there yeah there was a lot of drugs yeah we 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 were involved in that kind of behavior but there you go we were young and reckless this is all good because i've got indie pop down I know you're not completely indie pop, but that period of like 83 to 87 were the kind of glory years of sort of the C86 jingly jangly. And you you were there right kind of during the sort of the kind of whole post-punk period, really, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't think people quite realise how successful the bikers were as far as, you know, in the, being actually an indie band. And, I, you know, we had two basically two releases that were just kind of permanently in the indie charts for about a year and a half, you know? So, um, I, I, yeah. And that was basically 86. I mean, we weren't really, you know, again, what we came out of, I was thinking about it the other day, um, actually sort of was looking at what you were doing. I was thinking because the, because of the janitors, uh, the, the, the influence from, well, the, the janitors had given a tape to, um, God, what's his name from yeah yeah no john grayland oh yes uh so then you have this sort of because we were from leicester and you had this yeah yeah no connection um 
because yeah yeah no i think we're on in tape as well or were they on in tape i can't quite remember possibly um and the janitors got their thing through yeah yeah no and yeah yeah no we're always around leicester and i was a friend of Derek hammond who was the who was the singer i mean it was they were you know what we were into was completely different thing but um you know back then indie music was indie music and it encompassed all sorts of different stuff it didn't wasn't necessarily just jingly jangly you know and it, uh, although i you know I, i'm a fan of all sorts of stuff that, that came out from that era do you know what i mean um yes. i loved i loved i loved uh yeah yeah no's first single because he's just so you know so you know yeah yeah no put i can't I remember how it goes putting the fun back into being pretentious yeah yeah no so full of ourselves in the, the track Yes. By finding. It was brilliant, you know, because it was so sort of, it was so sort of cocky, but like, you know, it was quite sort of <laughs> twee at the same time. So, yes. uh, well, I think it know. was when John Peel played Stealing in the Name of the Lord that I thought, oh, yes, God, that really sort of, I don't know. Yeah. It was, it was kind of of a moment. And then, then there were other bands, like, I suppose, Bambi Slam as well, that came along who yeah. were probably a bit later and the Stupids as well. Yeah. Um, well, we played with the Stupids on a number of occasions. They were, and they were a great band. Um, you know, that three chord punk rock, basically. I mean, I guess, I and mean, then, you know, even Pop Will itself, when they started, were, were like more of a three chord sort of, you know, I I was, I had a side of me that wanted to sort of sound like that, but the rest of the bikers weren't really that interested in that kind of stuff. You know, I can remember, you know, later on sort of playing them the Pixies and going, oh, this band's fantastic. And they're going, oh, I don't want to sound like that. You know, it, you know, they, they didn't quite, they didn't quite, get it the way I got it in in certain respect because I I was I was an indie DJ before I before we did the band yeah uh, and I used to do that with Ian Anderson from Crazy Head and Kev Reverb from Crazy Head and Robber who was in who ended up in the bikers and we we played we just we played you know indie indie pop mixed with a bit of hip-hop you know Sisters of Mercy a lot of Smiths Lloyd Cole and the Commotions you know all sorts of stuff you know Three Johns and so it was very eclectic. Yes, you know. absolutely. Um, so were you, when you were sort of, you know, just going back even further, were you, what were you listening to in your teens that made you start to think, God, actually, I, I could do this. I, in fact, well, I'm going to do this. This is it. Well, like I, I don't, I mean, things I was listening to, I mean, I was listening to all, I mean, Echo and the, I was really into the Bunny Man and I was really into Teardrop Explodes, that kind of stuff. Um, but, before i mean musically before that it was a bit it was a bit weird because i my my i kind of my first sort of remembrance of sort of music is my mum listening to the beach boys and the rolling stones and um, and basically my dad would be listening to sort of big band jazz he was into a, another thing entirely so my mum was kind of a bit sort of rocky and sort of but it was it was always a sort of slightly cool end of 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 rock music you know wasn't and pop sort of rock you know she was more of a stones woman than the beatles and she loved the beach boys um and i would listen to that but then we had this guy that came to stay with us a guy called john steed and he used to bring up records my family's a cycling family and so he used to come up and ride with us on his bike this friend of the family and he used to always bring up loads of records and he would bring up these really strange records. and through him i'd listen first listen to like captain beefheart um, set the, you know, the safest milk album. Yes. Um, which I f- totally fell in love with. I don't know how I must've been about nine or 10, but it was just, I mean, I just thought that he's the name Captain Beefheart was hilarious, you know, 
before <laughs> I even heard the music. And then you'd like hear this sort of, to- I mean, that, that's such a psychedelic 60s sounding record. It, when you listen back to it, it's like, you know, that archetypal sort of sound. They weren't, they weren't that weird at that point. You know, it, it was the, the, the sort of pre-Dom Van Villet went a bit, sort of followed his artistic side. It, it was almost like A&M or Buddha Records, whoever wanted a pop record. So yes. I listened to that and really, really was into that. And at the same time, I was listening to Led Zeppelin and because my I had an older brother who was listening to that and I was listening to all sorts of stuff, you know. I really like I really liked The Who as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was listening to all sorts of different stuff. Yeah, so it was quite interesting because I've got an older brother. I'm in my mid fifties, so he was that he was seven years older than me, and I I kind of I suppose worshipped worshipped him at the time because I was young and just thought he was so cool. And he was actually into prog rock, so I used to well, listen yeah, to all these my, my, Yes and Genesis my, and Wishbone Ash albums. <laughs> yeah, my, I mean, my brother as well. It kind of you know it was Hawk. I mean, Hawkwind was always there, um, and then and then Yes, and then bands like that. I mean, I kind of had little flirtations of all these things. But then, sort of punk came. It sort of it sort of skewed it a bit because then I was a bit like when I was fifty. You know, I'm fifty five now, so I guess when I was fifteen, sixteen, it was like you know you were hearing like I could remember somebody coming into school with a Patti Smith um, seven inch. You know, um, Bond. Oh, Bond. No, what's it? Jesus Christ died for you. Yes, your, he died for your somebody's sins, sins but not mine. And, What's the what's what's the name of that EP? But I can remember vividly, like being really excited about what what's this, you know, and like, and so you know, obviously, you know, you start then you, then it would be the Dam, the Clash, and the Sex Pistols. Um, but it, it, you know, even that, I would still be listening. And I, you know, my brother, my brother, then sort of got out of the prog rock thing, and he started getting into sort of funk, Brit funk, and sort of American funk music and dance, you know. So I kind of appreciated, it, you know, there was always bits of all types of music that I enjoyed. So I never really, you know, that's what I liked about The Who, because in my town, you were like in Marks, I grew up in, went to school in Market Harbour, and it was a very, you're either a mod or you're a sort of a greebowy rocker. But The Who were like this one band that were, were actually straight down the middle, both both sets of those fans liked. Yes. So, you know, it's funny then because cause I guess music, what you listen to defined you as an individual, you know, when you were growing up because it meant so much more, you know, it, it, you know, it was a lifestyle kind of thing. But I was lucky that in, in that I was like really, really quite open-minded. Um, so, and I know, and I always had friends in different camps as well. So, yeah, I was, I'd listen to all sorts of stuff. Yes. So then when did you decide this is it, we're going to get a band together? Because I sort of grown up in East Anglia. I have to say, musically, it was a bit, you know, it was a bit barren. And when I look back on it, it it doesn't get better. You know, we we had the Farmer's Boys and you had the Higgs and Serious Drinking. And then, you know, bands in school used to sort of put together. I mean, it was like you realise how backward it was because most bands were a bit rocky because they liked a bit of heavy metal and status quo and Marillion. And they just sounded like, you know, a cheap version of Marillion. Punk just seemed to sort of, you know, like avoid East Anglia, basically. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I think, I, I guess, I, w- I went to Prince College in Leicester um, and basically about at least two people in that were in my, my course were actually in bands. And a friend of mine was a keyboard player in a sort of, a, they were like a, I don't know, how would you describe, like a, you know, a, they were, I guess they were a sort of a 
teardrop explodes sort of copyist sort of thing and uh, he and I was sort of I always used to hang around with people in bands and think oh you know that'd be really cool to be in a band and I started roading for the bomb party um and I can remember Andy Mascara the singer saying oh you should you should just do a band yourself you know and then I basically did a busking band with um with what the, the guys that went on to become crazy head a uh, guy called Kev Reverb and we did like Neil Young songs, Rolling Stones songs and um, Velvet Underground and all sorts of stuff like that. A lot of the, a lot of the stuff that I was actually DJing as well. Um, and I sort of get sort of de- developed a sort of the, the, the taste for it, you know, the smell of the crisp, you know, the, the addiction of people sort of clapping after, you know, done a, you've, you've sang a song. So I started doing cover versions and didn't really think about, I don't know, and then it, and then I got myself a bass guitar. I was rubbish at playing bass, but I used to like walking around town with a bass guitar, people looking at you, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think this this happened basically. That was what Lemmy had. You know, he just realised that somebody walked in with a guitar and then we're in a band, and all the you know girls, women flocked towards this person, well, and, and Lemmy yeah. said, "That's going to be my life." <laughs> it's like I've got to get a guitar, and he was in the Rockin' Vickers. You know, and, and then got got into Hawkwind playing bass, and then obviously, exactly. you know, and, uh, and and the rest is history. I mean, he, you know, he's a he's a legend. He's an he's an icon, seminal seminal character, isn't Absolutely. he? Absolutely. So, did you sort of like your voice? I mean, obviously, that's quite a major thing, isn't it? You, I, was, I you know, I didn't. You know, it's funny to, when I listen back to what I did sound like. I mean, I was trying to try. And, I think I don't know. I was trying to sound like Captain Beefheart, or you know, I don't know. I was just trying to sound weird for the sake of it, and I didn't really. To be honest, I didn't really find my. You know, I didn't know what I what I really sounded like. I mean, I, I sang at school, in like school plays and things like that, and you know, um, and I, when I was about, I guess twelve, thirteen, I went for a, a, an audition to do Joseph and the Amazing Technical Dreamcoat. Yes, and, that's cool. Uh, you know, it was a big, big production at Leicester's Haymarket Theatre, and it was a Robert Mandel, a quite a famous product production. Um, and I remember getting, you know, everybody lined up on the stage and the guys sort of used, everyone singing, singing their heart out. And then he came to me and just, and then after the first wave of it, like I was out and that was like, oh, sort of a bit disenchanted. The kid I went with, uh, who was less, uh, it was less keen to go than one of my mates was less keen to go than I was. He got, he got in. Yes. And so I was like, oh shit, you know, I'm, I'm never going to be a, he's ne- you know, I'm just not good enough. So I think punk made it possible for anybody to be in a band. And when, and when basically, you know, my bass playing was so bad, it was like somebody, you know, what are you sing? It's like, okay, I'll sing, you know, and um, sort of picked up the guitar and originally sort of, played the guitar really badly and everyone said no 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 just just sing we just need somebody and I just like say I just I, I kind of took to it and it was like okay this is good I feel good about you know uh but I, I never like I say I never really found still to this day you know I just made a record recently I've got this thing called Am I Dead Yet which I do with Noco from Apollo from 40 and it's very it's like almost croony singing and everyone's like, God, you can actually sing, you know, Oh, you've got an actually, the people actually saying you've got a nice voice. Well, you know, this is 25 years into my, you know, 30 years into my music thing. And I still sort of, I mean, I do feel quite comfortable singing like that. Yes. And, I, and it was funny because I did get the first gig I did with that band. I found myself like, wow, this is really weird. I, I, I'm, I'm like actually in sort of 
I'm, I'm singing in slow motion and it's like in the it, when you're in a rock band or a rocky kind of thing you, you've always got like the energy and jumping up and down thing that sort of if, if it's not going well and in this band it's the opposite of that you just got to sort of sit down and be really relaxed and actually sing and you know so it's been a, it's been a bit of a weird one for me because I've been I've been involved with so many things over the years and I still don't really know who what my real voice is, which I guess that's pretty sad. I guess I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. David Bowie started sounding like Anthony Newley, didn't he? And he he took exactly. the whole he took the whole sixties making some pretty awful records and forgettable yeah. records, which would have been completely forgotten apart from to sort of laugh at uh, if it hadn't been for his his work in the next few decades, really, wouldn't exactly, it? Exactly, which was phenomenal, obviously. Yes. Um, and no one would have put money on it, you know, like going, oh, yes, I, I hear some of your stuff in the 60s. You're going to be amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it does it's happen, funny. you know, it's kind of weird. And actually, it's interesting because Ian Gillan was in, I think, Jesus Christ Superstar, didn't he? You know, from who was in Deep Purple. So he, oh. he, he started out in one of those Andrew Lloyd Webber productions, which I always thought was quite amusing. I think actually he's on one of the, the actual little soundtrack from 1972, Oh, I didn't know that. Well, that's that's great. Well, I know. Go Ian Gillen, that's what I say. Monsters of Rock <laughs> playing in Jesus Christ Superstar. But look, now, at the early 80s, at the time, there was huge unemployment, wasn't there? And a lot of bands that I've interviewed, they they were sort of doing the uh, the Job Seekers Allowance, Enterprise Allowance. Yeah, Enterprise Allowance scheme, yeah, we did that too. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we were we were a recipient of the... The bikers were a recipient of the Enterprise Allowance scheme. Thatcher's uh, Britain, my God. That, I, I mean, I was always a bit of a gobshite, and you say, "Yeah, that should be really proud of us." You know, when we when we actually we sort of signed to Virgin and made this film, I would do, I was like, "Be going, yeah, we're employing all these people." Da, 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 da. And, you know, I I was kind of being ironic, and uh, you know, uh, but we were a part of that. I mean, you know, with to be honest, without that sort of benefit, um, that whole benefit thing, we wouldn't we wouldn't have been able to do what we did. I mean, it was. It was the it was being on the dole initially that allowed us to sort of to to, to indulge ourselves in you know in this dream of like being in a band. Yes, I think ninety percent of the indie bands from the eighties benefited from Thatcher's Britain and the Enterprise Alliance scheme. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, but that, I mean, but that was that was just that was just to manipulate you know figures and to get people off the dole. In, yeah. In, but it, you know, to be honest, it kind of worked for us because we you know within I guess within sort of well i guess at the beginning of the you know when the bikers sort of started uh it became a thing you know a, a full-time job as it were um you know it, it helped us and we you know I, I look back actually and what people don't really understand is the amount of work that we actually did put in even though we were doing what you know what we really wanted to do and we were following our sort of dream as it were but the actual physical work, because we, uh, some guy is just a guy, friend of ours called Rich is just Rich Deacon is is sort of been writing a book about that period, and he and he sort of sent me over a, a list of all the gigs that we did, and like for two years we were literally gigging pretty solidly every you know, pretty every other day you know it was it was it was a lot of work you know and if we weren't gigging we were we were rehearsing we weren't you know so. It wasn't like we were we were like on the dole and sort of doing nothing. We were actually really it was a lot of graft involved, which people don't seem to realise. And all those most of the bands, you know, would probably have the same story. You know, once they got onto the sort of if you had something played on the radio, for example, and then you sort of went down that traditional route, and all of a sudden, you know, 
started selling records and then all of a sudden people get interested in putting you on and then, then there was a, a fantastic circuit. Yes, well I, I noticed that and I sort of I suppose spoke to quite a lot of people about the great, that yeah the circuit because um, I think it was the guy from Collapse Lung was talking about it because it was kind of like you had the gatekeepers didn't you like John Peel, a John Peel play would yeah. be massive but it wasn't you know it would get you. And Janice Long. To Janice be, Long, absolutely Janice Long. You no, know, she was slightly early in the evening. She she and wasn't the, and she the wasn't quite on the wall as as John Peel. But you know everybody's everybody's ambition was always to get onto John Peel. That was it. You know it's yes. like and, and and the gatekeepers. That was you know for want of a better way, it's like a shit filter. Really, you know it would you know even though Peely would listen would play all sorts of stuff and sometimes he'd play stuff that was so bad just for the sake of playing it because somebody had made it and you know but at the same time if he sort of got into you or though you know that evening radio got into you and then and and again again then you only had like three or four um music papers you know through the three music papers if they if they wrote about you that was it if, if all three of them wrote about you you almost had great you know you 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 were you were on a roll and yeah well i think the nme sold a hundred thousand copies every wednesday morning or not morning it, but you know exactly. every week didn't it you know it came exactly. out exactly and you know if you got on the cover of the nme that was wow i mean for us to what you know that's what happened it's like it seemed so quick for us yes um, because actually the other thing about that you know you know you had those gatekeepers like john peel kid jensen Janice Long and the NME Melody Maker Sounds and Record Mirror. But then you had all the little, every city, every town had a like a indie night or a punk night or yeah, whatever. Yeah, I mean, but, but every town would have the, the place where all those people would go. Yes. You know, that, where all the sort of disaffected sort of, uh, you know, outcasts kind of people, whether they like reggae, rock, punk, you know... It, there would always be like that. That was the great thing. There was always like a, you know, a countercultural sort of headquarters in every every town where all the sort of like minded people would go. And this was pre pre the Internet, pre, you know, people would seek, you know, like minded people, birds of a feather, I guess, would would, would, yes. would uh, seek each other out. And there was something quite, you know, a firm, very affirmative about that, because wherever you went, like, say, every town had a place where everybody would go it would be all the enemy really you know and you know that doesn't really happen anymore well i know it's quite interesting because norwich we had the art center you had the the great princess princess, princess charlotte and then you had the square in harlow then you had one in i can't remember the one in leeds but you know every every city town just had a venue well, and the a, Arms in leeds i think yeah. uh yeah, so every Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday night, there would be that indie night that, you know... Well, you would... yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I used to, we, we used to... Di I mean, Leicester didn't have any sort of... Apart from the Charlotte where bands would play, I mean, they didn't have DJs on there because that was just bands. But uh, me, and, me and a few friends of ours used to do a, a night at this wine bar called The Chateau. This was like the guys from Crazy Ed and, and, and Ian Anderson and Robber from The Bikers. And we did we did an indie night and, and it was, you know, because it... Because it actually, there wasn't a market for it. You know, it, we did really well. You know, um, because there, there was a need for it. You know, I mean, the other place that you would go for it would would, would be to the Leicester, you know, the Polytechnic or the university, because all the you know you get all the art students and stuff would would be you know there'd be there'd be nights at the at the Poly. You know, and yes, well, absolutely. Girls were quite interesting to go and check out. So yeah, I mean, the, 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 this whole sort of—I tell you what happened 
I, I remember um, there was a there's a, Nick, a guy in Leeds called Nick Tokcek. Tok oh Tok yes, I've come across that name, Nick. Yes, and he was involved. Uh, he used to do, and this was like pre-internet. And this is what he used to do: this guide that you you sent off a postal order for fifty p or something, a, a pound or something, whatever it was, and he would send you a photocopied list of every venue of like you know all these alternative venues and 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 all around the country with all the phone numbers and all the contact names. And I can remember that's what that's how we started. And so I got this list, and I would we'd go right. Let's see if we can get any gigs, and literally just go through this thing. And that was like this resource was was such an incredible resource that he'd that he'd worked. At, you know, and that was just you know it was a total countercultural thing. You know, um, and this is something that you take for granted when you go onto Google now, and every, it's all there at your fingertips. But like, there were people sort of doing that kind of stuff, but like, it was photocopied bits of paper, and postal orders, you know. Postal orders, I know that. I mean, that means nothing to the young generation, does it? Checkbooks, you know, but postal orders, yes, getting them. I, I remember, you know, listening to John Peel, and he occasionally would play something that you'd have to write to the artist because a record shop, and then they would sort of send you the, either to send you the single and then say, please send me one pound and 25p um, yeah. check or post lord and then eventually you got this record but obviously after about six weeks of this kind of transaction <laughs> you would play it to death and and it would be ensconced in your brain for the rest of your exactly. life you know because it was such a you know because i never listened to john peel live i'd always record it on a tape you know the tdk oh, right, tape. It, was on, it was on late wasn't it it was on late and also because it was all new music you yeah. kind of your brain couldn't digest <laughs> that much <laughs> new stuff at once it was just impossible you know you know it wasn't like you got it filtered during the day listen to you know like Duran Duran or Soft Cell where eventually you you almost grew to like you know Save a Prayer yeah. because it was just always there whereas you yeah. know here in the Bundu Boys Public Enemy Napalm Death or whatever yeah. it's just like on the first listen is like actually yes. can I just I need to listen to that all again and yeah. try and make sense of it because often I found that John Peel would play like one brilliant song in a show but you know exactly you, that was it was very you know there was a lot going on and it was you know not everything was to your taste I mean nobody you can't tell me that everybody that listened to John Peel loved every single song that he played because he was so eclectic it was, yes uh, but there was know. that kind of that you know the Bundu Boys moment or the Smiths moment or the you know public enemy you thought oh my god that is that is kind of quite special and I'm sure somebody yeah. else would have a completely different narrative it's, to exactly. John Peel you know because it was just like things that made you think that is pretty incredible. So anyway, yeah. look, then, how long did it take? Because talking to various people, including Fast Eddie, it did take quite a few years before they actually, you know, they were just about to break up and they said, look, we'll give it one more shot and if it doesn't, we're going to just go back to labour and jobs. <laughs> and um, so how long did it take for the band to sort of get a sound that made you think, God, we've got something here? Well, I, you know, we, 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 were, we, just, we were just, we were just in a, you know, in, we had a, we had the, uh, our own rehearsal room that we rented um, that was in a part of an old um, textile factory in Leicester because Leicester was pretty run down and the textile industry was, was, uh, wasn't quite what it was because obviously it was a very booming, you know, it was a very big economy in the 50s and, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, Leicester was, you know, was the seventh largest uh, city and it was, had this huge um, uh, textile economy. Uh, there was a lot of places in the middle of town that were sort of that, that were 
you know being rented out at really really low prices so we just got we had this place it was it was a bit like the dub double deckers um you know like do you remember the double deckers program what they call they kind of um the tvs yes sort of thing. yeah yeah yes which was the guy from uh i think aswad was in uh, the drummer of aswad was one he of the guys was, that's it wasn't it and i seem to remember the film which was quite interesting in a yeah way. so we, we had this place that was a bit like the double deckers singing it was it was at you know we had our kit set up and we'd rent the space out we had a little room of ourselves it was like a we built a we built a um like a live room in fact, actually, there was another band that got signed to something. Didn't got got a big publishing deal, and then they didn't sign. They're called New Age. They didn't. They 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 built like a recording studio in this warehouse, and then they they split up. So we took it over. That's right. And then we had we had what was the recording room, and we used to rent out the the outside space to other bands. So we we I don't know. We we were sort of just working on our thing for like I don't know six six months or so, and then we. I don't know. I think it was probably after about three or four months, we went into a to to um to a a demo studio up in Syston, and um, we 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 did this demo and gave it to gave it to the janitors, and then you know before you know it, we we were signed to Intape, and we were sort of like, who you know, who do you want to work? Who do you want to produce the record? And we sort of, I was kind of into the Three Johns, and and they they. Mark Riley suggested John Langford, and I just said, oh, yeah, they're brilliant. John Langford, Mekons, you know. Um, and it was just great because John, John turned out to be, like, a really, really great bloke. And uh, we he, he when he first saw us walk in the, the studio, which is, like, somewhere in, like, Driffield or I can't remember where, or, or Bradford, I think. We, we we all drove up to Bradford and he saw us and he took one look at us. Oh my God, what's, what, what am I dealing with here? Yes, like within 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 sort of because we were a bit Mad Max, I guess, looking. And then um, within about you know an hour of being with us, he just said, "Oh, you know, we sort of fallen in love with each other." And it, it was a sort of you know we've been friends ever since. But um, we, we were lucky that you know once we got into the studio with John. He sort of did his thing and and um, put put the single out, and we we were so busy sort of just creating stuff and getting on with it that we wouldn't, they wouldn't really sit down and go, oh, that's a power. Oh, God, yeah, we're sounding like we we were kind of so into sort of trying to do different things all the time that um, we didn't really know what as what sound we wanted to make. We really didn't. It was like it was literally sort of it wasn't like we had like five records that we said, uh, you know, a lot of bands at the time sort of sounded a lot like each other um we, we just i don't know like i say we don't really know what we wanted to sound like we just did whatever came out kind of thing um so it, it was you know because the second single of nosedive karma was like we'd heard the beastie boys and that was our sort of attempt at making a sort of hip-hop sort of rap crossover sort of rock thing because we thought oh you know that's sort of we, that's pretty cool um, and you know and that that was you know quite a successful indie record yes because I guess one of their first singles was that one was it Hold It Then Hit It or something like that the Beastie Boys I can't remember well it wasn't, wasn't the part it was this was this was in a response to Fight For Your Right To Party oh right yes it wasn't it wasn't like in response to their their punk rock phase <laughs> um, so you know, and I can remember going up to John and sort of saying, John, we want to make a record that sounds like this. And he said, oh, great. You know, I've got this idea and we can trigger the snare drum or we could do this. 
you know, would I could just remember it being sort of fun, sort of experience. Um, and again, we didn't really know what we wanted to sound like. You know, we didn't know if we wanted to be a, a one minute we wanted to be a heavy metal band, the next minute we wanted to be a three chord punk band, next minute we wanted to be a, you know, a, a, like a hip hop thing. And we we had this sort of collective, um, uh, what do you call it? You know, when you're multiple, the collective. Um, schizophrenia schizophrenia yeah we, you know you get four schizophrenic people it's like it was a bit um you know which was sad because there was a points in time with the bikers where we were we, where we came where we got kicked off of virgin records and we we did a deal with revolver to like to actually be indie again and have our own label which is called naked brain we had the opportunity to work with um with John Leckie, literally just after he'd finished the Stone Roses. Oh wow! And which was like because our, our manager at the time we'd been we'd had management ripped off. Our manager at the time was a guy called Martin Elborn, who was the booker of Glastonbury and looked after New looked after was the agent for New Order and the Smiths. Um, and he was a good friend of the John Leckie, and John Leckie John Leckie was kind of into doing it. It was like oh, this is a challenge, and he, he liked the idea. We played him some demos, and he really liked it. And um, and he said, you know, I think we could do something with that. And I was like, great, finally, somebody's going to, you know, we're going to get a serious producer that's going to sort of make us sound, you know, like he turned the Stone Roses into this, you know, made that record, which was, you know, I, I don't think their album, that, that Stone Roses album is particularly brilliant because it just sounds like a lot of ripped off stuff to me. Yes. Uh, uh, however, it, it you couldn't help but see the cultural impact that it made. And it was obviously a really big record. So I just thought, oh, well, if he's going to sort of apply that theory to us and sort of take the best bits of what we've done and make it, maybe we actually going to have a hit, you know, we can have a hit record or make a great record. Um, and But typical bikers, it's Kev Biker, didn't like John's trousers or something. And we were having this conversation or a bit of an argument. It, and, it, and, it, and it came to pass that we didn't, didn't use John Leckie because because Kev didn't like the way he was dressed or something. It was just like really ridiculous, um, and it's like one of the reasons we split up because we sort of weren't agreeing on anything at that point. That was further down the line. But yeah, yeah, uh, sound knowing what you wanted to sound like, we we you know, in their, in their eyes, oh no, we'll do it ourselves, which I think was a big mistake because we had no experience in producing records. You know, well that's the that's the, I think what happened. That was the end of that first. Motorhead sort of line up with, you know, Filthy Taylor. Yes, that's it. Phil, Filthy Taylor, Fast Eddie and Lemmy. Was that on the third album after they did two brilliant albums? For some unknown reason, the management thought it would be a good idea to save money by having Fast Eddie do, you know, be the producer rather than get another a person in to do it. And I don't think he was keen. And the rest was, um, God, who was the producer who produced the guy that uh, did The Who Live at Leeds? Oh, God, now I'm... I forget because we went into the studio. We went into a, actually with Virgin. We actually we actually went into the studio. What was his name? God, the, oh, it's terrible. I've forgotten the guy's name. No, I can't uh, remember. He he produced he produced Motorhead, and he did the Who live at Lee. Vic Mail. Right. Oh yes, I think then I think from what Fast Eddie said that him and T uh, uh, Phil Taylor really were. You know, Phil just hated him, so they got rid of him, and then you know said, "Oh, Eddie, you can you can produce this rec next right. th the third record," and it was like just a massive mistake. And 
and then it was the whole Wendy O. Williams problem and the oh, whole God, band yeah. just kind of had a massive blow up and Fast Eddie was off and that was kind of, you know, the beginning of the end of that first three piece of, yeah, of Motown. That, that's, that's kind of what, you know, we, you know, because like we did so much work in a, in a, in a, in a you know, we spent so much time together. This the, the rise was quite big. We you know we went toward America, da, 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 and then it was just like oh, it's just it was too much, you know. We we in each other's in each other's you know faces too much, and uh, unfortunately that's what happened with the bikers. But I think we were very much of our moment, very much of the time, and you know, and long may it remain so. I guess yes, because most bands have you know, especially in the eighties, had a five year narrative. You know, they got together. 12 months of rehearsing, you know, while claiming some sort of unemployment benefit. Then yeah. John, a John Peel play, a bit of a John Peel session. That first album, things going well. Second album, a bit tricky. If anybody then does America, they come back and it's like, mostly say, oh, we did America and then we broke up. So was that kind of quite similar? Because in that time... Yeah, pretty much, pretty much, <laughs> definitely. And, and throw into that, you get commercial expectation with, you know, because we were, we'd signed to Virgin and we weren't as successful as, you know, as, as you know, obviously they thought we were going to be, uh, you know, once they start throwing money at you and you sort of, you know, and you're not, you're not, you're not getting in the charts then all of a sudden and that was a big regret because we you know as much as we sort of wanted we wanted the money we thought that get our message across or whatever message was but you know we were quite political in the sense that we were you know that we were anti this and that you know and um well it's interesting because the red guitars and also the railway children had started on other labels then got signed to virgin because they kind of thought oh well we better do that thing now and then immediately just hated it because remember the you know the lead singer of the railway children suddenly they were getting pressured to support take that and he started thinking i don't we don't want to support take that we want to be rem or something like west exactly. coast rock we don't want to be supporting yeah. this slightly bizarre kind of camp band who are just you know flailing around half naked on stage but suddenly you know they were being pushed into all sorts of decisions that i think just broke them and you know dread guitars it was like actually we just they just turned up and said actually i don't want to do this anymore and that was the end of that I mean, that was pretty much which what broke us. And I think we, because we were so from the underground, really, and what we were all about, because we sort of, I mean, we were into the festival thing and we were into all the, you know, we were, we were uh, Crass were a big sort of influence on us on the really early days. You know, it was all that sort of, you know. So what you do, the, were you doing those free festivals and, and playing at Stonehenge we, we, with the we, Travellers? We, we we were involved in like in, in that kind of stuff early on. We played a couple, a few of those things. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we played at... Um, you know, a lot of sort of, well, the guy that used to drive us around in his bus, he was his was the last bus out of the Battle of the Beanfield, you know. Oh, the uh, famous Battle of the Beanfield. The My God, that is so Beanfield. impressive. Uh, yeah, but and, and basically everybody got onto his bus, um, <laughs> our mate Tat, yeah. So he was like the proper proper crusty name, isn't it, Tat? Um, he, with, you know, with a dog called Chaos or something. Yeah, something like that. Um, but, you know... We came from that, yeah. We came from. We were into all the, 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 you know, the politics of free parties and you know Stonehenge and Hawkwind and sort of that kind of uh, inner city unit, that kind of thing. So that was a part of what we were about, and and I think it didn't really sit well when we signed to Virgin, and it, it you know, and once you get into that sort of semi-fame thing, I, I kind of wasn't really ever in, you know. As, really into the idea of becoming famous for the sake of being famous do you know what i mean and playing the sort of celebrity thing was all yes. a bit 
I went on a couple of TV shows and stuff like that, and which was sort of fun, but like not not really the way I wanted to go. And sort of thought, well, God, if you actually do get famous, people are going to sort of start following you around, or you know, and it never really sat pretty well with with me. So I didn't really didn't really you know wasn't really down with that to be honest but you know I wanted all I ever wanted to do eventually was just to make a great record and make you know make a bikers record that everybody loved and you know went out and bought and sort of you know was up there with the Smiths album or a you know you know one of those classic sort of echo in the brain you know something like that but it you know wasn't to be so because one yeah the one thing that sort of killed a lot of those bands off I say killed, that's a bit drastic. But, you know, from that kind of, like I was saying, that five-year narrative between, oh, yeah, and that period of, like, 83 to 87, the kind of, basically, that's the years of the Smiths. And then things really changed when they finished because then you had ecstasy, the dance scene, and that started yeah. to change. So a lot of those those bands like the June Brides and the Wolfhounds just went, oh, fuck it, no one wants us anymore. You know, everyone's yeah. everyone's on. So how did you cope with that kind of shift in music, that kind of musical scene? Well, we, I mean, we were, because we were always like, like I said, we were always doing different types of stuff. We were kind of, we kind of embraced that at the end of the bikers thing. We sort of embraced, we'd sort of been sampling and we were, we were, we kind of embraced that a bit. I mean, I'm, I don't, obviously now I'm playing in Pop Will Eat Itself. I mean, they were, they were a classic band who sort of, we sort of, we were lumped in together early on and they made some great sort of crossover records and sort of, and, and the bikers were, we'd made like dance singles and, you know, made, drum drum machine stuff um but it, it just it wasn't it never really it, we, we were always sort of tarred with the sort of grebo brush so we we didn't sort of go beyond that so um you know there were certain bands that sort of just get you know you you know your primal screams and your you know anything that's on creation and seems seems to have a sort of a a, a long you know there's certain bands that the the, the media and the press sort of just really bigged up and then we we just sort of went by the wayside you know what i mean yes. so and it's you just collateral damage i mean not not every band can be a success and I, I i take that um it's just it was a luck of the draw really you know yes and also when you were making late you know at the turn of the decade you know the cancer planet mission album did yeah. you sort of feel that th- was that a struggle to make that or were you feeling no i mean we were that was that was the record that john john um Lecky should have should have produced really because it had so many good ideas on it and the actual you know that 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 was a con- we found this book called cancer planet mission which was i don't know if you know the story of it if you look for it it's really hard to get hold of but it's it's about this alien who comes to earth and sort of you know so it was a kind of real it's like a eco awareness thing this guy sort of tells us that we're doing everything wrong and that we need to you know build organic machines and uh, a friend of ours gave us the book and if you look for it online it's really hard to get the author's ludwig k pullman cancel planet mission it's 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 fascinating book or like i say it's fat and we were like so off our heads it's like oh my god this is great we're going to make this so you know we were we were we were up our own little wormhole at that point so we weren't really at that point we weren't we weren't um, flavor of the month anymore we're just getting on with it um like i say we made that record and then the next record we made was was more of an ecstasy sort of fueled dance sort of thing that that wasn't the happy mondays and it what you know we'd miss that manchester thing so they were never ever going to put us as, as a part of that or you know even though we'd sort of you know been dabbling with the dance yeah. cross stuff before you know so 
And uh, then, and then, then, and then, sort of, when was that sort of moment where you thought this is it? To quote Jim Morrison. Well, um, what happened was is that um, that basically we did a gig in uh, New Cross, uh, and the venue at New Cross, quite a big venue. And Robber, I didn't we did, didn't quite realise that Robber wasn't in, in mentally in a good way, and everybody sort of was, you know, we, everybody was burnt out. Um, and somebody ran into the changing room and nicked his bass guitar. Um, it was a bit of a sort of a very chaotic gig. I seem to remember like everybody was because we because you know we used to let the fans and we were quite sort of anarchic in that like we'd let the fans come backstage and sort of hang out. We would you know like. Now my, I, I loved the clash and it was like Joe Strummer would always go and talk to the audience. And so we were a bit like that. And then I think that point, there was a bit of sort of trust was broken and, and we were sort of like horrified that somebody would, could come in and actually steal. And then Rob was so pissed off. He just said, that's it. I've had enough. I'm not, I'm, I'm the band's gone. I'm not, I don't want to play anymore. And, and, and then we sort of looked at each other and sort of like, you know, so, you know, how are we going to sell our tickets? Cause basically we were selling t-shirts to live. You know that was our thing. <laughs> Doing gigs and selling T-shirts was was how we were making our money, and and that's that's it. You know you've sort of taken that away from us. And but the thing is, we were all in agreement. It was like you know we, it's kind of run its course now. Um, so much so that when Tony carried on selling the T-shirts after the fact that I phoned him up and gave him a piece of my mind, I said, "Look, it's over. F- forget about it. You know, there's no point. What you know? Why are you trying to you know?" flog a dead horse it's finished you know you're trying to make you know just forget about it and I got really upset with him for sort of trying to sort of you know maybe unfairly for trying to sort of keep it alive and stuff and by that time I was sort of on you know on to you know thinking about doing other things and you know I fortunately got asked to um go over to the to the states to play with Pigface, which is like Mark by Raven who was a friend of mine from Killing Joke um yes was playing with his band and said, Oh, do you want to come and do you want to come and be in this band pig face, which is Martin Atkins, who was the drummer of pill. And I was like, that sounds pretty good. And I, and at the time I was listening to, we were towards the end of the bikers. We were listening to a lot of ministry and stuff like that. The harder sort of industrial music. And, um, and, and it was happened to be like, like a lot of those guys who were in that, in their ministries live band, uh, that were sort of going out as pig face and like all of a sudden I found myself involved in this sort of heavyweight sort of American thing that when industrial music was at kind of at its peak in the U S yes. getting on board a, a bus playing to sort of 2000 people a night and sort of, you know, in this sort of industrial sort of super group. And I was out, you know, I got, I, you know, I got, I got out of, and I, that was it bikers over. I'm on, I'm onto the next stage. And my thing, cause at that point I was like, you know, I wanted to do something new. So I was, like I say, I was lucky in, in that I kind of I had a, an avenue out of it and that was it sort of thing. And from that, I then made a record, had a band called Hyperhead. Oh, uh, yes. So which, just going back to Pigface, because that, did that also feature a member called Chris Conley, who was yes, in the Scottish right. band who did a single called Did Testimony? Did Testimony. Yes, he was in Finney Tribe. Finney Tribe, Christ, yes. Yes, so he did it. You know, that was an amazing well, he connection. Was singer of, he was one of the singers of the uh, Ministry and the, and the Revolting Cox. So Chris Connolly was like, Al Jorgensen wasn't the only singer in Ministry, so uh, it, a lot of it was done by Chris. 
Um, I mean, he left soon after that. Uh, he, you know, after it started getting the, it got really out of control. Al Jorgensen and the drugs and everything. Um, so Chris left, and so Chris has Chris has done like uh, a lot of interesting solo stuff. Yes, uh, written books, poetry. Um, I, I actually covered one of his songs on the Hypehead record, a song called Ignition Times Four. So yeah, no, Chris is a great guy. So I'm how actually, did you manage to sort of your because you're, you're almost there with David Bowie kind of keeping it going because I I realised that because my first single was Bowie's you know um, Space Oddity and first album was you know Changes One and and then yeah. sort of you know over the years you know it's a bit like your first love you stick with the, that person don't you thank God it wasn't Gary Glitter um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean it was that could have been you know it was close yeah, it was. wasn't it but um, yes but then you look back and think Christ you did an album a year throughout the seventies every year you know he did you know and produced several other albums so you managed to sort of keep your brain because a lot of people go and the band finished and then I spent six months wandering around feeling depressed or a little bit like god what am I going to do apart from get a haircut I'm I'm generally quite a positive person you know so I always sort of on to the next thing I mean obviously I've got you know you have moments where you know you get down about things but you kind of just got to get move move on, haven't you? And sort of, you know, I've and I'm luckily I've always, you know, I've always done that. I mean, I, you know, I did the Bikers and then I did Pig Face, which was like all of a sudden I'm in a sort of a bigger band, almost as if the Bikers was an apprenticeship to that, you know. Um, you know, I, I was on stage with like Andrew Weiss, who was the bass player of the Henry Rollins band. He was a guy that produced all the Ween's records. Yeah. Um, you know, Martin Atkins. There was like. He was public image, obviously. Nine, he played in Nine Inch Nails. Um, Chris Connolly, a guy called Nesh uh, from KMFDM, and Ogre from Skinny Puppy. So all these guys were like sort of big heavyweight guys in the in the in the industrial sort of scene, and it was just fun, you know. It was like you know they they took me on board, although you know I didn't thought well where where do I fit into all this? And then they, they were saying you know, but you know not, a lot of them are saying those dive karma was a big you know, they'd play in the industrial discos, you know, it was an early song that a lot of those people were into because it was like, you know, it wasn't really rap. It was like, you know, sort of dance rock crossover. Yes. Uh, so they're like, no, no, you're totally a part of this. But, you know, you just and, and as you know, as it turns out, pop will eat self are because, you know, that the the this is the day, this is the hour was a very influential record on people like Trent Reznor. You know, I, I've just come back from playing a festival where they headline, you know, pop is headlined and they are very much a part of that scene because, you know, the people working on that record flood, you know, the guy that the produ- producers, all the people that went on to work with Depeche Mode and yes. Nine Inch. That. So, so there's, you know, your little part of your, your music thing that I know that I was a part of, or we've, so, you know, that, that, you know, so it just, you know, you just keep going because it's, cause you know, you, you're lucky. It's, it's, it's a lot of it's luck, you know, I was lucky that I got asked to do it. Lucky that I I was good enough to to actually you know hold my head up and be able to be a part of it and not you know you know actually add to it. Because um, because having spoke to there was a you know I kind of think you know like um, it was Danny from Mega City Four who said when they finished they still owe, they suddenly realised they owed a huge amount of money and then mm. like Tim from the Janitors was still a little bit sort of sort of raw and sore about the publishing deal that he signed, you know, or the band signed, so they never saw a penny. So how did yeah. you manage to navigate... Did you manage to navigate 
that at all well you well, know I mean, you know to be so we were we were sort of paying ourselves and you know wasn't on the dole and then when the bikers split up all of a sudden i kind of had to sign on again and i didn't know what was i had no i was so not aware of my financial situation how much money the bank owed how we owed the bank how much we owed virgin i had no idea if i'd stopped to think of it then i probably would be really depressed and really but luckily for some reason like no one came after us i mean we had we had a huge overdraft from the bank but that wasn't in my name it was in the manager's name and you know there were so many sort of fortunate things that i didn't get chased by the tax man or this and that because you know i I didn't, you know, I had no idea what was going on. I was living, you know, for the moment at all, all the time. I wasn't thinking about, you know, because I was doing what I loved doing. I didn't really think about money. You know, I know a lot of people have got signed to labels and the first thing their manager said, oh, you, you know, you need to get yourself a flat and put a deposit down on a thing. You know, I mean, that's probably what I should, you know, years later when you think about it, you go, shit, maybe that's what I should have done. You know, I had a sizable amount of money that. Um, yes. That that uh, that. But uh, but talking to Jim, it's in my bank, and you know, I just didn't think of you know, and and I we had an accountant, and you know, I did. I, we had two or three meetings with the accountant, but I can't remember ever paying any, you know, because I don't think I was earning any that much. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So, well, that's quite handy because I know a few bands, and you know, and also people like Jim Bob from Carter, and also the Age of Chance, who we love Jim Bob. Um. You know, he said for some somehow they've still you know they 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 owe the record company a lot, which well, yeah, I mean, and, and and so they'll never own their songs because they're just saying, well, look, you know, we you've got you you've basically no chance, mate. You know, we've, exactly, you know. exactly. But the thing is, if you ask if you ask Virgin Records about uh, the gay bikes and acid, they they, they don't even, they don't know any, they, they they wouldn't know. It's it's so not on their radar. You know, we we you know. We put out those that we re put out those things and DVDs. No one's ever come after us, you know. Those those recordings. It's like, you know, you go to them and ask them about it. They they don't even know that what department was that that was shut down before we got taken over by the fifteenth. Yeah. So so you do know, you do you own your material then? Do you have the masters and everything? Oh, I don't. I don't know. I, I, because I'm not trying to exploit it in any way. I don't know. I don't know who owns it. I really don't know whether it. You know, I if I haven't seen the contract, you know, I'm not that, cause I left that behind. I don't, I don't really know. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people I know, um, you know, in bands that have got, got, got advances still owe the, the record label money and they don't, owe, and, and you know, if they wanted to use the actual recordings, they'd have to either re-record them or like pay significant money to do so. But because no, there's not a great deal of demand from K bikers and acid that, that, that that's never arisen, you know? Yes. So, I just don't, you know. I just prefer to like, yeah, whatever, you know. It, it, it's, it's really, you know. I never really got involved in in music to for the money, if no. you know. It's, but you meant yes. But you managed to. Well, I've kind of made because somehow I've made a living. I'm, you know, after, after the fact, I got I got involved with Apollo four forty, and then I had hit records. But then by that time, I was kind of way more sensible and sort of when the money came in oh, I bought myself a flat you know uh so it became sort of normal but I was like four you know almost 40 when that happened so um uh uh all that before that was just I can't really remember I don't really remember I was just sort of so busy just living life and getting on with it and not thinking about that kind of stuff yes and you uh, and I, that, I didn't realize that your roots are back in Spryston yes I was born in Spryston Spryston Norwich 
Yeah, my dad was a my dad was a journalist at the Eastern De- well, the East Anglian Daily Times. My family's from Suffolk. You're right. And um, because there was a part of the same group, EMAP, yes. he sent up to Norwich, I guess, to work on the paper. And um, whilst whilst he was there, I was born. The rest of my family is from Suffolk, so I'm the odd one out. Um, and then, and then when I was around ten years old, we moved up to Leicestershire because then he went to the Leicester Mercury. Um, My God, that's amazing! There aren't that many pop stars from Spraston. Well, there's there's um, some drummers. There's my mate Steve. There's the, I don't know if you've seen the film about the three drummers. There's the guy, the guy that plays with Basement Jacks. There's this Steve um, Barney who played with Jeff Beck. Annie Lennox, he's from Spricksworth. And then the other drummer who was married to, who played with Joe Strummer, who's married to that girl, who, oh, I can't remember her name. Anyway, there are three famous drummers from 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 uh, Norwich. Yes, I now remember hearing about this film. So what would you, you know, considering you've done fantastically well and you've managed to sort of keep doing what you've always loved, I mean, what would you have said to your 18-year-old self if you could have said, my God, there was this one bit of advice that you really should just take with you? Well, I, it's difficult because there's so much advice I'd give to myself then, you know, because I would have just like, you know, maybe taken it all, the mu- making of the music a little bit more seriously. I don't know if that sounds a bit bad, you know, put a bit more, you know, a bit more quality control, a bit more, you know, been a bit more, you know, because I would have loved to have made one for that band to have made a great, great record that still gets played today. That's kind of you know you just want to make great music, don't you? And it's like, it's like you know, like I always look back and think if John Leckie had have produced us, maybe we'd have made a great record with the Bikers and all that sort of bluster would have been worth something. You know, you know all that sort of you know, you know all the hype that we sort of had um, might have been worth something, but you know. I do appreciate that what we were doing was was kind of fun, a bit irreverent, um, different. So I, I don't know. It's very difficult. Yes. Maybe, maybe I bought myself a flat, but then, I, you know, I wouldn't have been, you know, when I got signed by Virgin, I could have put a deposit down on a flat. You know, I would have had a, a slightly sort of, you know, my life might have been a little bit easier, I guess, you know, if I'd have been. But, you know. Why would I look back on, on that kind of stuff and think that now? Because you know that I was so busy living, you know, living for the moment, living for today as it was, uh, that, that I didn't really wasn't paying attention to any of that. But yeah, I would 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 have maybe you know maybe taken a bit more effort and care in the writing of the songs and you know you know because I knew new friends who were a lot more serious than I was about everything. You know. Yes. And. But at the same time, it wouldn't have been what we were, you know, so. There's one thing I've noticed that uh, the passing of time, 30 years seem to be this kind of period where suddenly people start looking back, not just in rose tinted sunglasses, but wanting to archive stuff and think, God, you know, and you probably realise there's been quite a few films made recently from like the wedding presents, one on George Best, and then there's the go-betweens and the chills and L7 and the slits. Have you, I mean, has there ever crossed your mind thinking god that'd be a really nice project to somehow archive some of the stuff because it's quite tricky to get hold of your yeah. material isn't it 
Uh, it, it, I mean, the thing is, you, it's all on Bandcamp. So, like, it's it's it, if you any of our material that we ever made is on that is on that platform. So, right. Uh, so, which is to, Tony has always taken it upon himself, thankfully, to to sort of be the holder of the keys, the keeper of the flame, as it were. And so he's always, you know, made that stuff is available, you know. Um, yes and no, really, you know. I don't know who would really, you know, somebody's written a, a book about sort of the less couple of the Leicester bands, Rich Deacon's writing a book, which, you know, I, I'm looking forward to reading the completed version of that. But um, I don't really know. I don't really know. I'm kind of, I'm, a lot of the time I'm like, yeah, I'm really about what's what the next thing is that I'm doing. I'm not really that interested in looking back. Yes, I know. I think I think it's a, something that you need. So it was kind of weird with the one with the wedding present because it was literally somebody who was used to go and see I don't know some little football club. I shouldn't say little football club. It might have been Brighton or somebody, and was standing. I think just having a chat with somebody next to him who we'd see every Saturday, and it turned out to be that the drummer from you know the wedding present, right. and um, and suddenly went oh, and then you know the idea started to snowball, and then suddenly they was you know, next thing he was making a film about it. But that's a good, I mean, but that was a big record. I mean, it was a good you know that was a seismic. Rec- I mean, that, that, like that was, I guess after the Smiths, that was the biggest sort of indie. You know, they yeah. were a big band. They were a big band. The wedding present, you know, there's no doubt at that time they were they were huge. Um, there was a lot of chat about the click track and the drummer. Did you ever have any problems with the click track? Did we have any problems? I think we tried, attempted to play with a click track and then sometimes it got either thrown out the window or then we decided to use drum loops instead. So, uh, um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm sure we had a click track argument at some point. But, you know, because we were, we were working on, you know, the, the record that we made, the first record we made for Virgin that was the soundtrack for the for the out for the film, um, a lot of that was sort of taken into electronic realm, that, and we weren't particularly happy with that, the sound of it because it was all a bit stiff and sort of it made it sort of, yeah. And so yeah, we think we did have that argument, and then we realised that's why we sort of the, as soon as we got out of you know as soon as the next record we made, we went straight back into the studio with John Langford, yeah. made. And made a made a you know which was uh, stewed to the gills, and we made it like a, a, a very consciously made a live record, you know, the band playing. Um, and by that time, we were sort of listening to a lot of Bad Brains and sort of American American hardcore music, and we sort of wanted to sort of you know uh, do that, you know, as a, as a reaction to, to 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 being in a studio with this with a record that we made that we weren't that happy with, and we weren't actually because we were making the film at the time, we weren't really there for the whole process of it. It was not, you know, so again, it was one of those things where I almost regret not being there, but we were putting ourselves under such a stupid schedule of filming and, and uh, making a, making an, a film while we were recording the album that we weren't on top of it, you know? So, um, yeah, yes. we did. That. I mean, yeah. make it, make, so whose idea was it to say, look, this is a great idea. The Beatles done it. Let's make a film in the eighties. It was the monkeys. It was like, you know, oh. with swings in the head, you know, it was like, it was like, Oh, because you know, you, the bikers are a bit like the monkeys. You're all, you know, all you're very, you're all quite, you know, you've got a personality, you're all a bit different, you know, so I, you know, it was, <laughs> we were just, I don't know what planet we were on. But it was the eighties. We could almost, I think, I do, do seriously remember going, saying, I think, I think, Boy George had just made 
a video that cost something like half a million pounds for a single and, and they, it was on the label and we just turned up and we spoke to Simon Draper who was the CEO you know the head of Virgin we said oh look you know you we'll make a fi- we can make a whole film you know for for that <laughs> and he's like okay you know and so we so next minute we're sort of talking to to you know uh we we decided to talk to Ray, you know Ray Lowry who'd done the Clash album and done some artwork for us and who we got our name from and we basically we basically saw like Ray Lowry to connect you know because he's he he's like cartoons are like a storyboard and it's got sort of slightly surreal sort of edge to it and we said okay Ray let's, so let's do a you know so we sort of ended up writing a sort of treatment with Ray Lowry. And then somebody said, "Oh, you need to get a proper, you know, uh, you know, proper screenwriter." So we got this guy, Paul Davis, and I don't, I don't know if it's the famous one now because I actually don't know. But this guy was was up in Edinburgh, so we got on a plane and went up to Edinburgh and had a script meeting, and all of a sudden it became this big thing, you know. Uh, before you knew it, we were sort of going over budget and you know making a film that sort of. Didn't didn't get shown because the name on acid got got banned by the British Board of Film Censors. Um, you know they had to asterisk on acid. Um, uh, so it was all a bit, a bit weird. You know, um, you know, it was just basically it was those it was those times. It was like yeah, make a video. Yeah, they do the video. We're gonna have a track for each one, and it's all gonna be huge. You know, it, and it didn't happen. God, you dreamt big, though. And you also, I we mean, you did. did. We, we did dream big. That you know, it was like, but what you know, we lived in Leicester in, in, in the in the in the in the eighties in, in in the UK, and it was pretty grim. You know, it was like, um, so we were all about sort of trying to trying to get out of our situation, I guess. Yes, well, absolutely, and obviously, because there were certain bands one had to see just because you liked them, but people like Sonic Youth and the Buttholes, and and all those bands were obviously quite. You know, you were all part of that kind of world, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, we, I mean, musically, not really. I don't think we were quite as adventurous as them and quite as good as they were. But I mean, in what well, maybe I don't know. I guess that's all subjective. But yeah, I mean, that, the thing is that we were more a part as far as indie music, as by that particular time, we were listening to more American music. And you know, it was definitely the Bottle Surface and it was definitely Sonic Youth and uh, Scratch Acid. Um, uh, big black stuff like that and i guess yeah we had more in common with them on a cultural level because we were you know we were into that sort of you know that kind of aesthetic i guess you know yeah. and um, what was and what was it like because you did also support people like motorhead was that quite a an interesting experience seeing people like lemmy close up it was an interesting experience because we were called Gay Bikes and Acid. We got a name from Gay Bikes and Acid from a cartoon that Ray Larry did that that he had death threats from the Hell's Angels, and basically that we played with them at Hammersmith. It was the end of a tour, you know, and we had and that was just place was just full of Hell's Angels. So we just thought we so we took our friend friend of ours had uh, had a couple of Rottweilers, so we took two Rottweilers with us in order to sort of fend off these these Hells Angels who thought we were going to beat us up because, because, you know, we had this name. And in the end they came, you know, I think it was one of the Hells Angels, uh, oh, I can't remember his name, but it was one of the leaders of it. 
he said, oh, you boys are all right. You really held your ground. You know, I'm just <laughs> walking down the stairs, going on doing a sound check with a Rottweiler in my it's like because we, we were so it was just all a bit surreal really yes you know? god that um, was um yeah god that's, that's good <laughs> seriously it was all it was all a bit mad so you know all these things happen so quickly like you know our first ever gig in america was at was at felt forum which is a part of madison square garden you know our, our trajectory in the u.s was play the madison you know felt forum which was like five eight thousand venue i think um, and then the next time we played the Ritz, which is now the Webster Hall, the Ritz was quite a big venue. And then the next time was CBGB. So we kind of we went down. Uh, we actually played in a big place and ended up playing the smallest place. But you know, because we were at, we were playing at CBGBs, it was amazing. It's like wow, man! And our seventh gig ever was at the Marquee in London. You know, so. There's so many weird things that happened in such a short period of time. Yes. And did you do most of the UK, including Norwich? Yeah, we played we played at the I guess we played at the art centre in Norwich. For sure we played we played in Norwich. Yes. Amazing. You've got to be done. Anyway, look, this has been great. I've got quite a lot there actually. But thank you again for uh, giving it me the time. It can go off in many tangents at any given moment. Yes, God, I know, but so many kind of amazing stories, actually, you know, I sort of still sort of actually the Rockweiler one is going to stick with me for quite a long time, actually. It's just, you know, it's just you can't you couldn't make it up, really, could you? Well, you, you can't. I mean, that's the thing. I've like lived, you know, I mean, I walk down the street. Nobody knows who I am. It's great. But like people don't, you know, I've, I've supported the Red Hot, you know, Red Hot Chili Peppers played in London. We were there as they we were their requested sort of support band. They played at the Astoria, but it was their biggest show at the time. Um, you know, I've been, you know, I've with Apollo 440, I supported U2 in Israel, you know, the first gig that they'd ever done in Israel on the Pop Mart tour. I had, you know, with also with Apollo, with like David Bowie standing on the side of the stage watching me perform, giving the thumbs up, like, you know, uh. Is the most very surreal because you know obviously I'm you know everybody was a fan of David Bowie and yes. sort of you know um, you know I had my penis plastercasted by the plastercasters of Chicago like you know what was that all about <laughs> um, so I don't know is this, there's this sort of sort of weird so many weird things that have happened to me and it's like you know you just I don't know but I, I I I I'm very lucky that I've been able to live this existence you know i've done some pretty crazy things i've got away with doing pretty crazy things i've gotten a lot more sensible as the years go by and um I've, luckily i'm just about still involved in making music so you know can't really complain no my god it's amazing <laughs> i mean it is truly quite an amazing story i mean it's just just to be able to keep bouncing from one gig to another and to yeah. survive and especially surviving i would imagine the whole time with um pig face you know that was, that was that was crazy i mean that was that was like that was very decadent and debauched and you know sort of a lot of sort of dark dangerous drugs involved in that which luckily i never got involved with but yeah. you know my my presence on that tour was actually got a lot of people out of of like the dark sort of addictive drugs and it was like i was like the fun guy you know and, and people didn't you know people started dropping acid instead of doing smack you know it's like so you know luck uh, you know my involvement with that actually stopped a couple of people from going down that that route but you know 
it was you know it was pretty it wasn't a world it was it was a world removed from playing you know an indie club in you know in uh, in reading or something you know so when you first met al jorgerson was that quite intimidating because he he does sound... well, I didn't really know I, I, I didn't really know al he wasn't a part of pigface it was it was it was more it was more um uh the bass player and Martin Atkins, who was in the live band. So I met him a couple of times and he wasn't crazy. He wasn't so crazy then. It was after they had, they got really successful and he, he sort of, he went off the rails, but he was a, you know, a massive caner, you know, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a, I didn't, don't, I can't honestly say I know him that well. I know a lot of people who know him really well and, and I wasn't, didn't really hang around him. So, um, yeah, I can't really, can't really comment. Yes. On. Well, absolutely. But then, you know, I think he's still alive, isn't he? He is still alive, yeah. yeah, yeah. You, you know, like, <laughs> just about. Just about, I know. Which my is God. surprising because he's because he's pretty extreme. Yeah, Scott. I suppose it must have been. Did it feel like a like a big step? You know, like my God, this is a whole new league. You know, from what where you'd been. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly what it was. It's like, you know, I mean, Martin Martin was the drummer of Public Image, played with Johnny Rotten, and Raven was the bass player of Killing Joke. You know, um, God rest his soul, um, and. You know these these guys were sort of, you know, I'd got used to go and see them play. You know, I was I, I was a massive massive Killing Joke fan. So to be, all of a sudden be on a stage with one of the members or two of the members of the band. I mean, Martin Martin was briefly the drummer. Yes. Um, it was yeah. It was all of a sudden you. It was a slightly different league. You know, and like I say, I sort of found myself sort of found myself sort of uh, thinking, God, what am I doing here? And then realizing, oh, actually, I can. I'm that. They, they like what I do and that's it M- move on and just sort of you know get get your head around the fact that you know you you can you can do something else you know yes well amazing oh, look this has been fantastic well thank you ever so much for this well no problem um hope hopefully some of your listeners won't find it too boring to god i'm to. sure they won't they'll love it no they do they, they love these kind of interviews actually but that's great well thank you um ian that's fantastic that's all right okay that's then fine. where are you where are you actually at this moment i'm in brighton fair enough there's a yeah, lot of people I, who I went to in, i lived in brazil for 10 years uh, my wife's Brazilian, and so I, we came back two years ago because it was getting a bit sort of politically crazy there, and um, I was getting more offers of things to do work-wise here. So um, coming back was a sort of smart option because they've got, like, Trump on steroids as the president there. Like, you know, you think Trump's an idiot. This guy's, like, is that out-of-the-ballpark idiot, you know? Um, so unfortunately that's that's what's going on there and i wasn't sort of comfortable bringing my son up there and it was getting a little bit more violent you know the 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 mayor of rio was like that lets the police sort of shoot at will doesn't care about people you know they're they're all about more guns and it's like really don't want to be living with that so yeah i came back and i'm in brighton now and i you know i was working with pop will eat itself and and then all of a sudden i'm working again with uh apollo 440 I've got this new thing that I do called Am I Dead Yet, which you should check out, which is on Wire Sound Records, <laughs> um, which I do with Noko, who's in a band called uh, Luxuria with Howard Devoto. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so Noko, yeah, Noko, and he played at The Cure, played at one point in his in his existence. He's the guy from Apollo. So that's quite interesting. I'm really quite happy with the music that I'm doing with him. Um, and then I've got another thing called Magnetic Empire that I do, um and yeah apollo is sort of doing some gigs i just came back from playing a 
the festival in Lanzarote and there's some more stuff going on next year. Probably itself playing Australia and New Zealand next year, a few dates towards the end of this year. And I'm going back to do a pig face tour in November this year. Blimey. That's, yeah. That's... And I have to fly back to do, uh, to play at Shine at the weekend, the Shine weekender on Sunday, the 18th. I have to fly back, fly back from Cleveland and then I fly back to New York to complete the, the pig face tour, which is, hasn't been happened for the last 20 years or something. So yeah. So I'm kind of hanging in there. <laughs> 